Today I'm teaching about the passage in Genesis 2, where Adam is placed in the Garden of Eden by God. It's going to be fun. Let's read the scripture before we go any further. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, I don't preach very often, but when I do, I find it really useful to approach a passage of Scripture by looking at the where, the why, the when, and the who of the text. So we get a bit of context and a bit more understanding about it. Where is it set? Why was it written? When was it set? When was it written? And who is it about? And for most of the Bible, that's pretty straightforward. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, by Paul to the Corinthians. We know the time, we know the place. But for the early parts of Genesis, it gets a little bit tricky. But let's give it a shot anyway. So let's start with where. Where is this passage of scripture set? Luckily, I have the internet. I've done my research, so you don't have to. And I've done so much research that I can tell you that we definitely don't know where the Garden of Eden was because it was destroyed in Noah's flood. We also know it's definitely in Iraq. It's definitely in Iran, Turkey, Jerusalem, Venezuela, Yemen, the Isle of Lewis, Jackson County, Missouri, and Atlantis. It's also in the Persian Gulf, and it also didn't exist at all, and is entirely a metaphor. So that clears that up. <laughs> How about the when? When did God put Adam in the Garden of Eden? And who was this Adam fellow anyway? We're going to get into some pretty sticky territory here too, and we're going to go down that fascinating discussion of 6,000-year creation versus 13.7-billion-year Big Bang, which we heard about last month. And this could easily lead to a discussion about evolution, the culture and geography of the ancient Near East, and then I'd ask a side question about why hunter-gatherers don't seem to be part of the biblical narrative, which ends up with us talking about Neanderthals, the validity of carbon dating, the Olduvai Gorge, and the Clovis people, which, if you don't know about, they're fascinating. But we're not going to talk about that today. <laughs> there is, however, a when, a why, a who, and a where that I do want us to consider. Who wrote Genesis? Lots of people think Moses wrote it. Some people don't. If you disagree with this, it's okay. We're not going down that rabbit hole today. But let's just say that Moses wrote it. The best estimate is that he wrote it in the 15th or 13th century BC. And it can be narrowed down, where he wrote it, can be narrowed down to somewhere that's either dry and rocky with lots of sand, or dry and sandy with lots of rock. <laughs> so it certainly wasn't written in pleasant, lush, fruitful lands with abundant water. I think it's really important to think about 
what this account sounded like to the people who were around when it was written. Those people were the Israelites, and they were having a rough time in the desert. How they would respond, how would they respond to a story about God planting a garden, something that Israelites themselves wouldn't be able to do, but would have a cultural memory of? And there were fruit trees, which they wouldn't have, and flowing water, which they wouldn't have. When they were hearing this, it's most likely that things between the Israelites and God weren't so good either. They're being told a story of God hanging out in a garden with Adam, a lush garden with clear flowing water and fruit trees while they're in the hot, stinky desert where there's limited fresh food and water is scarce. So we'll hear a bit more about the Israelites as we go on. But before we do, we're just going to go a little bit deeper into some of the bits of this scripture. So, the Lord planted a garden in Eden. God planted a garden. What does that even look like? It seems to be different to the rest of creation. It's a specific place that God planted. But we're not going to talk about that today. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Also interesting. We could go into this, because obviously I completely understand it. Actually, I have no idea. Um, but Carl's going to explain that in detail next week. And I'm looking forward to him just answering all the questions on that. Then we have this description of where the garden is. Which, as I've said, isn't really helpful enough to let us know exactly where it is. But I think the point of verses 11 to 14 is to give the Israelites a geographical context for Eden. I assume that when Genesis was written down, it had been, there'd been some oral or written tradition about these places before. Um, and so, as, so the people listening to it would have some idea of the places and, and things that were mentioned there already. Now, who's been fishing at Lotton Point? Stew hockey. I see that hand. This is something what it would be like to them. Imagine there is a great fishing spot in the east called Lotton Point, and there is a man near there named Stu. There are snapper and crays all over the place and massive kingies if you can catch them. It's 200 kilometers from Gisborne where you can order all sauces on your chips. And the all sauces are good. It's not too far from Ruatoria. Be sure to pop in and see Waitangi. And remember that on the way you can see Bay and Jim in Tokamaru Bay. This to me, is, this is what it was like. They're like, there's this river and this river and you know where that gold is and there's this place and this place. Well, it's there. Okay? So the text in Genesis is putting Eden in its geographical context, but also mentions the resources that are of value to the people Moses is talking about. It's easy for us to know how good Lotton Point is, but now imagine if you're a different version of Stu and you've been stuck in an office job in Auckland for years, working 70-hour weeks, and then someone comes to you and tells you about this place of kingies and snapper. We kind of take the concept of Eden for granted, but to the Israelites in the desert, it would have sounded like paradise. Eden's mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, which confirms this idea as well. In Joel 2.3, the prophet says, The land is as the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Joel is talking about the Israelites at a different time, but even so, Eden's understood to be this, this contrast to the desolate wilderness. It's portrayed as an ideal place to be, to live. And now we've, we've, uh, we're going to move on to those rocks. So Delium is mentioned. 
It may be aromatic resin or pearls. Who knows? That's sort of, it's, it's only basically mentioned once in all time. It's assumed to be tree sap or pearls. We're not going to hang too much on that. Um, the other things that are mentioned are onyx and gold. Now, onyx is a semi-precious gemstone, and gold is gold. These were precious to the people that Moses is sharing it with, the Israelites. So precious that they were part of the priestly garments the high priest would wear. Um, so it's sort of not random that those things are mentioned there. The next thing we read is that God plonks Adam down in the garden and tells him to work and keep the garden. Now, we could, and I was very tempted. In fact, I wrote the section of the sermon, but you're not going to get it today, about why gardening is so good for your physical, mental, and emotional health. It is so good for you. Or the fact, I also started writing this, the fact that Adam and Eve were involved, before that Adam and Eve were involved in what we will call the fruit incident, God told them to work. So before the fall, God told them to work. Work is part of God's plan for us, part of God's ideal for us. I could also do a sermon about that, but I'm not going to. But gardening is so good for you. So what do we know so far? Adam is in a lush place with some valuable resources nearby, and God puts him to work. In the next verse, which Carl will cover next week, God talks with Adam. We get that? God talks with Adam. At this stage, we've got God and Adam, and they're in the garden. There's a relationship there. The garden is the place where there is God and Adam, then Eve too, and fruit trees, and clear water, and God, and Adam. We're getting this? It's pretty crazy. The next chapter of the Christian story, Adam and Eve sin, are kicked out of the garden, and that closeness between God and Adam and Eve is destroyed. But at this stage... It's just God and people. Heaven has come down to earth. And now we're going to have a quick run through the entire Bible. Creation, the fruit incident, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. God talks to Abraham, Noah, some other people. Then he talks to Moses, and he really talks to Moses. Heaven comes down to earth in a big way. Moses goes up on the mountain and comes back with the Ten Commandments. Meanwhile, the Israelites make a golden, ah, it's good, golden calf. The Ten Commandments are put in the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant is put in the Tabernacle. Okay, the Tabernacle means dwelling place or tent, and this is an area set aside for connecting with God. It's a temporary tent structure that when the Israelites are moving through the desert, they take God with them. It's quite convenient. That tabernacle is where heaven comes down to earth. God's presence is there. It's not only there, but this is a sacred space set aside to meet with God. And there's all kinds of rules about how to use the tabernacle relating to cleanliness and the sacrifice of animals and the garments you have to wear with gold and onyx on them. Possibly not delium. Gold and onyx, though. And within the tabernacle is the most sacred space. And it's called the... Holy of Holies, which is mentioned in the last song we sang. Um, and last question for a while. To get to the Holy of Holies, you go through a curtain. This may all seem completely unrelated to Eden, but we'll, we'll get back there. 
This idea of connecting with God develops through the Old Testament. The concept of the portable tabernacle is turned into the idea of the permanent temple in Jerusalem. And there were different areas that people could, were allowed to go to in these sacred places. There were rules for who could go to different sections. Gentiles weren't allowed in, and then Jews were allowed in, but women were only allowed here, and then men were here, and then priests were there. And then one day a year, the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies which is through that curtain. And there's a Jewish tradition that says that he would have a rope tied around his leg in case he offended God who smote him and they'd pull him out. Because if you went in to get him, you'd become unclean because you'd be touching a dead person and you're not allowed to be unclean in the Holy of Holies so you'd get smote too and there'd just be this. A rope was an easier thing to deal with that situation. Now the day that he would enter the Holy of Holies was called the Day of Atonement, where an extra special sacrifice was made to atone for the sins of the Israelites for the year. Atonement or at-one-ment is being at one with God. Again, heaven coming down to earth. So before sacrifices were given, folks had to be clean. It was physical and spiritual purification. Eden is portrayed as a clean place, spiritually and physically, before the fall. Adam and Eve stopped being spiritually clean in the fruit incident and were kicked out of the garden. So in the same way, the temple had to be kept clean, otherwise you'd get kicked out. Back to the entire story of the Bible. For quite some time, people kill things to atone for their sin, to get closer to God, and then the Israelites, they turn away from God, they come back to God, they turn away from God, and temples are built and destroyed a couple of times. Then along comes Jesus. Jesus was heaven coming to earth, literally. He was born into this Jewish sacrificial system. He was Jewish. He would go to the temple. He knew he grew up around this whole system of sacrifice for sin. We're going to skip over Jesus' life to the next chapter, which is when Jesus was killed on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. Remember that curtain in the Holy of Holies. Who knows what happened to it when Jesus died? It was torn asunder. (laughs) It was ripped from top to bottom. So, while Jesus was still alive, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What happened three days after Jesus died? He rose again. And that was him rebuilding the temple. He's saying there, he is the new temple. The building of the temple was a mechanism for people to connect with God. He's saying that he is that mechanism now. He's not saying he's a building. He's saying he is the way people can connect with God. For everyone, not just the Jewish people. Jesus is the temple, but the story doesn't end there. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? So there was Eden, Adam and God hanging out, and then the fall, the fruit incident, and then the whole Old Testament, killing of goats, killing of cows, the Holy of Holies, this massive difficulty connecting with God. Then Jesus comes along and says, oh, you're the temple. You are the temple that for the whole Old Testament, 
was so hard to get into. Like the high priest went in there once a year under fear of death. And now we're like, dear Lord Jesus, can I have a new PlayStation? Like, it's a pretty different relationship now. So, it's not just that you are the temple. You are the temple. That word you means you plural. So it's you individually and you plural. Um, Because remember, it also says your body is a temple. So that's individual. But this is saying that you yourselves, you collectively. So, if Eden's the first temple where where all is right with God, where we connect with God, where heaven came down to earth for the first time, and now we are the temple, then does it follow that there is nothing stopping us from being as close to God as Adam was? We are the high priests, and we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy of Holies has been ripped open, and we could stop here and go home. But I'm not done. I want us to look into this Eden idea a bit more. It's taken us on a bit of a journey, which has been fun, but we've lost the point that Eden was actually a physical garden with trees and rocks and rivers. In fact, Western Christianity as a whole has pretty much dropped the idea that trees and rocks and rivers are even part of God's plan. But Eden shows us an example of a lush spiritual relationship linked with a lush physical space. In fact, through the Bible, we see really strong links between spiritual health and environmental health. For example, in Hosea 13, God makes the link between God's between people's actions and the state of the environment. Hear the Lord's word, people of Israel. For the Lord has a dispute with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithful love or loyalty and no knowledge of God in the land. Swearing, lying, murder, together with stealing and adultery are common. Bloody crime followed by bloody crime. Therefore, the earth itself becomes sick, and all who live on it grow weak, together with the wild animals and the birds of the sky. Even the fish of the sea are dying. So conversely, if things are going well spiritually, the land will be fine. If they aren't, the land will become sick. I'm pretty heavily trained in science, which is pretty strong on the old rational thought. And I love this stuff all the same, because it's just like there's this whole other world that's like spiritual good, land's good. We're not just bystanders in this process. As we're all aware, We have massive negative impacts on the flora and fauna, the seas, and on the ground itself. In Genesis, God told Adam to work and keep the garden. Now, this was not a garden that Adam just visited on the weekends. The garden was the place he had been put in to live. So this is not just about the trees and the birds out there, the environment. It's much bigger than that. It's about the parts of the world on which we have an impact, which is the environment. (laughs) And the Lord God, this is Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. If Eden is the ideal situation for us that God placed Adam into, then whatever we consider to be our garden, which I would argue includes all the places we have influence on, then we are to keep that. Other translations say, work it and take care of it, tend it, watch over it. Cultivate and keep it. Cultivate it and guard it. Care for it and maintain it. Serve it and keep it. However you translate that, it does not mean trash the land. 
Given that the negative influence of people was felt throughout the globe from the top of Everest to the bottom of the deepest ocean trench, I'd say we're not meeting up to God's ideal of dressing and keeping the garden. Interestingly, the Hebrew verb to dress and to keep are also used to describe the work of the priests in the tabernacle. They had so much respect for that tabernacle, they'd pretty much do anything to protect it. So, if Eden is the place where to meet God, the first temple as it were, then that space is something we have to put effort into, dressing and keeping, maintaining and caring, serving. These are all active words, not passive. To serve something is to do your best for it. To me, an analogy could be a marital relationship. Now, I'd be daft to ask, what is the least I can get away with to keep Amanda tolerating me? So, our relationship to the place we live, the world, should be one of respect and service, of reverence for a sacred space created by God who loves us. Now, Jason Akuhata-Brown, who's not here today, he explained a few weeks ago that he runs the Waikanae Stream Restoration. It has toxic stuff leaching from an old trash dump into the stream, and he's been working on that for seven or eight years. It's suffered some pretty terrible treatment over the years. So I'd say work like his is restoring Eden. It's doing God's work. And I could, I could go on with so many examples of that. You know in yourself, you know when things get better, when they get closer to Eden. You know which, which of these. I'll list some things. You choose which ones are God's ideal. Clean water, diseased tuna, erosion, dying trees, abundant food, plastic on beaches, oil spills, tasty vegetables. It's not rocket science, is it? There is a reason people are rushing out to see coral reefs of the world before they're bleached out. No one wants to snorkel a dead coral reef. We know what Eden is. Walking through a full, complex forest system, it's an amazing thing. And my job, which is trying to make forests better, I get to see the difference a little care and attention can make to a patch of bush or a wetland over time. Also, walking among 800-year-old trees up at Waterworks Bush just feels incredible. Or an amazing garden or a healthy wetland. These can also be great places to connect with God. It's, again, like the Holy of Holies. It's not that he's only there, but when we're there, we're more ready to meet with him. It's like going into a quiet church in a busy city So we have an internal idea of what this natural Eden looks and feels like, and now the desire to fix things around us to keep our land. But that's not my main point. Now, I've made a career out of trying to protect the flora and fauna of our country, and it's an honor to do that. And I wouldn't do it if I thought it was a moral and corrupt and a terrible idea. But I once asked a minister um, of a church I was going to in Dunedin if he thought I was doing God's work by doing that. And I've come back to this a few times over the years. What he said, he didn't say yes or no. You know, when you're young, you're like, I want to do God's work. Is this God's work? And he's like, you'll figure it out. (laughs) He said, don't let your good get in the way of God's great. Don't let your good get in the way of God's great. And I've, I've come back to this a few times. I feel like the good of this passage It's God's good. But the good of this passage is that we can and should look after Eden. But the great is that we are the temple of God. The good is that we should look after Eden, but the great is that we are the temple of God. And I have a feeling if we get the great sorted, the good might just look after itself.
So as we finish up, remember the temple where heaven came to earth that had so many rules and was so difficult to enter is three things now. Heaven comes to earth through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit in you, and through you, us. People see God through us. People connect to God through us. We are one of the ways people connect. So if we're the way that people can see God on earth, if people connect to God through us, then we have to ask, what's the human equivalent of the Waikanae stream cleanup? Who in our town is a bit of a mess and is suffering because of wrongs of the past and present? Who needs a community effort to come around them, give some much-needed mulch and fertilizer and some new planting, which will lead to positive growth? This is the great. This is us being the temple. Plants are amazing. In fact, people in hospital who can see plants out their window heal faster. If you've got a person in a bed, they've got a view of plants, they get better faster. But so do people in bed with a view of or a hand held by you or a family member, a brother or a sister or someone they don't even know. If someone's loving on them, they get better too. This is not just made up stuff. This is Studies show this repeatedly. Trees and people make people better. Medicine does too. But trees and people. In the same way, we don't have any 800-year-old Christians around, but the forest giants of our faith are amazing to be around as well. You meet someone in their 80s or 90s who's been a Christian longer than you've been alive, and it's just great to be around these people. And as a community, like a forest, with individuals of a full range of ages, all sorts of different people, makes our temple feel richer with each part valued for the contribution they make. So, we've covered a lot of stuff this morning. Lots to take in and think about. If you haven't been listening at all, just remember this. God put Adam in Eden to have a relationship. So as we go out today, this week, this month, this year, let us serve and keep Eden as Adam was commanded to. And also be that amazing temple that brings heaven to earth for those around us. Thanks.